Um, we're going to listen to God's word from Mark 2. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark 2, uh, we can read that together. Mark 2, from verses 18 to 22. Um, now John's disciples and uh, the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine, well, new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's just thank God for his word, and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It's living and active and it breathes life into us. We pray that we will take these words of Jesus Christ seriously this morning, that we would consider all that we hear you say to us. Not just that, we will consider who it is that says these things to us. Would you open our hearts to be, to be receptive to the word of the one who made us, the living God, as he speaks to us. Help us to put you, Lord Jesus, in the right category in our minds. And let the only worthy or the only reasonable response to you be that of worship and wonder and awe. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I've got some, uh, something to show you this morning. Uh, and you might have noticed that for the last couple of weeks, we've been using the backdrop of the Easter feast as our as our theme for the slideshows behind the scenes and it's still a work in progress but we can't wait any longer we've got to show you this behind the scenes we have been updating the website and we have updated the website to reflect this festive theme as well so let me just uh, get it on and quickly show you what I mean That's fine. You can take me away. Okay. Yeah, so there you can see, this is our website, Canada Water Church, and we will figure out, there's little tweaks that we want to make, and we've just been greatly blessed by Sarah's gifts. This picture uh, is such a beautiful reminder of, of our Easter feast last year. So it's great news. We've got... A new website and as you can see it's festive it's celebratory it's it's a party and and that's intentional we, we did it like that because we wanted you to feel this very important theological truth this truth that shocked the Pharisees and the, uh, the teachers of the law in Jesus's time that Jesus was someone that was eating and drinking with sinners that he was festive that he was full of joy they were walking around glum-faced 
and morose. And Jesus challenged them with his joy. Jesus challenged them uh, with his love for life, with his happiness. And so we want your heart to be immediately captured by that festive mood. Uh, and, and even more so in a time where the whole world seems to be dispirited and despairing, glum. We want to put this festive mood before you because this is actually what it means to live authentically as a Christian. This is what it means to live authentically as a Christian. is someone who lives in the light of the resurrection, lives in the light of the feast, the eternal feast that is to come. And in many ways, the, the battle cry, no, the slogan of the church should probably be the words of 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Christ is risen from the dead. Death, oh death, where is your sting? That really should be our theme. So, uh, Stefani, you can put me back and you can later go and peruse the website and see its, its color and its joy. Let me just get back to uh, the slideshow because uh, there's important slides to, to show you there as well. Um, I'll put it back on there. Like, like that. But, but really the church's slogan should be something like this. Oh death, where is your sting? So every time you look at this colorful, festive website, uh, remember we are not delusional as a church. We're not somehow misguided to celebrate in a depressing time. No, we're actually pointing people to a time that will come where we will all be once, once again together to, to praise and to worship and to enjoy fellowship with one another. Why? Well, because the Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. That's the words of 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the feast. One of the old English, let's keep the feast. And that's an instruction. That's a command to keep the feast. And so the other thing you'll notice from these paintings that Sarah uses as the backdrop to the, to the website is it is of actual events that took place with real human beings. It was a picnic in the park after church one Sunday. Or it was an Easter feast uh, in the Salmon Youth Center last year in April during Easter. It was actual events. And, and there we learn an important lesson. And here's a little pastoral note from me to those of you that's regular members of this church. Distance... Yeah, it might make the heart grow fonder, but it also makes the heart grow harder. I don't know. This is, it just seems like this is the way our hearts are wired. That, that when we're together week in and week out, we soften the idea that we have of each other in our minds. We soften it up with the reality of seeing each other in three dimensions. It's strange, isn't it? That when you don't see people for a long time, you sort of lose track of who they who they really are. You just remember their key features, perhaps the key things you like about them or the key things you dislike about them. And, and the longer time you spend apart from them, the more those things grow in your mind. But, but, but seeing them brings everything back into balance and you see them again for who they really are. Now, now that's what's happening in this passage where the, where the disciples and the Levites, uh, the, the, the disciples and Levi, the tax collectors and the Pharisees, they see Jesus for who he really is. And he's, he's really keen to show him who he really is. 
But that's what we're missing out on at the moment as a church when we don't get to gather together. So the pastoral note for you here is, is as you look at this website, this colorful website full of pictures, full of pictures of real people, please keep your heart soft towards one another. Pray for one another. That is the way to do it. That is the way to do it. Take some of these pictures. Some of the people that you'll see they have gone on to other churches or they've moved out of London or they've moved to other parts of the, of the world. Pray for them. Soften your heart. Keep your heart soft towards people that have passed through uh, the life of Canada Water Church so that we can celebrate the feast. So that was just by means of pre-introduction. Now for the real introduction to the text that we're reading today. Uh, the, the text that we, um, that we read this morning was from, from Mark 2. And, um, and, and just to place it in context, perhaps last week you remember it was about Levi, the tax collector. He was sitting in his booth in his dominion of darkness and Jesus came and he called him to the dominion of light and, and he followed, supernaturally just picked up and followed, a bit like the paralytic that just picked up his mat and followed Jesus at his command. Levi just followed Jesus. And he follows Jesus to a feast. And the Pharisees, you remember from last week, they were standing on the periphery, on the outskirts of this feast, looking in. They were looking in at Jesus feasting with these sinners in their view. And they, they pulled some of the disciples aside and said, why, why is your rabbi, why is your teacher feasting or eating with people like this? Uh, and then Jesus responded with his category-busting statement where he said, uh, I've, uh, uh, I, I'm a physician that's come for the unwell, not for those that think they are well. <coughs> Jesus is saying that he is the physician, that he is more than just a, a teacher of the law, that there's something else going on with him. Uh, but today, as we come to this next passage, we, we begin to see what it is that is going on with him, uh, what it is that Jesus, or who it is Jesus is saying that he is. And, and the disciples don't really know what what to do with him. They don't know where to put him, where, which category to fit him into. And so we'll go through some of these motions with them as we look at this passage this morning. The category-busting power of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but I can remember as a, as a child in school, it was very clear where people would fit in. Uh, you'd, have, you'd have two big groups. There's the teachers and then there's the children, the, the students. Uh, and then within the teachers, you'll know who the department heads are, you know who the head of the school is, and you'd know who the teachers are. And in the children, you'll know who the seniors are uh, and who the juniors are. And especially in secondary school, there came a, a, a person came in, or people came in at least once a year in our school, that sort of messed up the categories. Because they were, they were student teachers. They somehow straddled both of these categories. And it, what made it even worse is my brother, my brother is four years older than I am. So people that were his friends that would come to our house and visit and eat with us. And, you know, I know him as my brother's friends. All of a sudden they're in my school and now they're my teacher. And I wouldn't know how to relate to them, how, what to do with them. Because they're just in a category that I'm, I'm not sure where to put them. Now, we've got to have a little bit of sympathy here with the, with the teachers of the law and with the Pharisees. Because that's what they encounter when they see Jesus. Jesus doesn't fit neatly into a category that they have in their minds. And, um, and they need to make, and Jesus is helping them make that category. But once that category has been made, it requires a response. And the response will prove 
if you've put Christ in that category or not. And that will become clearer as we, as we move on through this passage. So, before we go on, I, I've got to say to, to those of you that's not Christian and you're listening to this as well this morning, is, is that this putting Jesus in the right category, it, it, it's a particular problem for you because you might think that Jesus is in the category of religious leader or he's in the category of, of guru of some sort, someone that will give you guidance or help or make you feel better in your difficult circumstances. And you, you might be like a counselor or a comforter to you. You'll think this is where Jesus wants to fit into your life. And, 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 and you, I want you to hear this morning that that feeling of not knowing where Jesus fits in, you're not alone in that. This is where Christians are, are often falling down as well. It seems like by default we want to fit Jesus into a category where we, are, we have a particular need for him to be. If we're in need of a psychiatrist or a counselor or a comforter, we, we want to put Jesus into that category and we sort of strip all the other things away and we only put him there. And then sometimes we're a bit disappointed if he doesn't live up to our expectations. Or if we've got a particular physical, practical need, we, we'd love for Jesus to be our provider, our miracle worker, our financier. Uh, and it, he's a bit disappointing if he doesn't fit into that category. This is true for Christians as well as it, as it is, I guess, for you this morning. If you're not a Christian, you're following this and you think, I'm not sure where to fit Jesus into my life. So, so let him create the category. Why did you come to his scriptures this morning and let him create that category? Because what he is saying through this passage is, I am the God-man that came to burst open all your categories. Make room for me. Make room for me. So, just focusing then on the start of this passage, and we need some cultural background here, and that's why I've asked for those of you that regularly attend the church to send me some pictures of, of weddings, weddings that you might have attended. I didn't ask for that. I should have asked for that. If you've attended a wedding recently, or it was your own wedding, particularly photos of when people were leaving the wedding. This is vital to understand because Jesus is going to speak about weddings in a minute, and, and he will say to his hearers, he'll say, can the wedding guests fast whilst the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And we don't understand that because we don't understand how weddings worked in the ancient Near East. You see, in our weddings, we have the wedding ceremony. Uh, and then after the ceremony, we go to the reception. And at the reception, we'll eat and drink and have speeches and dance and so on. And then after that, the couple would leave. They would leave to go on honeymoon or they go to stay somewhere in a hotel or they go somewhere nice and we'll, we won't see them for a while until they're back. And that's not the way wedding feasts work back in the day. The couple would leave the ceremony and then they would go home and a seven day feast will begin. And if you're a wedding guest, you will feast with the bride and groom for the next seven days. This honeymoon would be their honeymoon would be the best food you would have eaten that year when you were a wedding guest. And it will happen. It will take place for seven days. So let's look at some pictures of you all. I've uh, asked you to give me some pictures. And, um, and here's what, the first ones. Okay. Here's one of the first ones that we've received. That's Carl and Tricia as they are leaving 
uh, their wedding day. They might not leave there, but it's just one of the pictures. It certainly looks, it looks as if they're going somewhere. Um, here's another one, and Stefani, I'm my full screen. You can take my face away. Yeah, yeah, you are away. Okay, good. There's Chris and Anna uh, on their wedding day, and we remember lighting those sparkles uh, on that evening. And wonderful. There's Hintai and Steph just leaving their, their, uh, their wedding reception as well, full of joy. There's Murray and Siobhan. Just look at that. Look at all the joy and the color in that picture. Beautiful. Here's Tom and Nikki, and they're leaving their, uh, their ceremony at that point. They didn't immediately have pictures to hand of them leaving the reception. But just, uh, just look at that. Oh, here's a classic. There's Anthony and Joy, long before we knew them, leaving their, uh, their reception, going off on honeymoon. That's beautiful. Ah, oh, yes, here's Dave and Linda. Beautiful picture of their wedding day. Look at these guys. Rob and Liesel. Beautiful. <laughs> Fantastic, just leaving their uh, reception there. And this one, we can't quite see their faces, but Jonathan and Hannah is in there just where the bright light is. But you can see it's at the end of the festivities and they're leaving. Uh, and, uh, and we remember being here. In fact, I can see my son and daughter in the left-hand corner of this picture. That's Andrew and Rachel leaving their reception. There's Jamie's mom and dad uh, as they're leaving their reception. Uh, and there's Jamie and Esther leaving their reception. <laughs> and here's the final one. Oh, what is that? Pete and Ashley. Beautiful. I can remember that poor car's engine that he was revving as they were leaving their reception. Beautiful. Just the joy of that. You see, this is what we think. And you can take those, those off, Stefani. Um, this is what we think when it comes to, um, to the, the bridegroom leaving the feast. Um, and, and so we don't quite understand what Jesus is saying. Just come a little bit closer. That's what, what we, why we can't understand what Jesus is saying when he says, um, he says, can the wedding guests fast whilst the bridegroom is with them? Because the, the bridegroom wouldn't leave for seven days. The bridal party would hang around for seven days and they'll have a party for seven days. It'll be festivities all the time long. And so Jesus asks a very straightforward question. Can, are they able to fast? Can the wedding guests fast whilst the bridegroom is with them? And the answer is no, they can't. You've got to be, you've got to be a strange kind of person to attend a wedding service and fast, not eat and not celebrate. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to them. So that's one cultural thing you need to know. The other thing you need to know is this business about fasting. You see, the Pharisees at the time, they point out this truth that, that John the Baptist fasted and his, and his disciples fasted. And the Pharisees themselves fasted. They're trying to say, look, this is a religious thing that good and righteous religious leaders of the time did. Jesus' own messenger, John the Baptist, did it. The Pharisees did this. And, uh, and, and why isn't Jesus doing it? Surely it's a good thing. And, and the way they know it's a good thing is because God in the Bible tells them once a year to fast on the Day of Atonement. And it must be, and uh, I'm sure in the Talmud you can read about it, that the Pharisees then came up with this principle where they said, well, if once a year is good to fast, then twice a week must be good as well. So that's what they did. They fasted. I think it I know it was Thursdays, but I, it might be Tuesdays, Mondays, Tuesdays, Mondays or Tuesdays, I can't remember, but definitely Thursdays. They would fast on those two days. And they would 
put ash on their heads and they'll make their faces white and they'll have disheveled clothes and their hair is unkempt. And they would walk around and everyone would know that they are fasting, morose, morbid, and depressed. And so they ask a good question. They just say, why is Jesus not doing any of this? This is a good thing to do. Why isn't Jesus doing any of it? And what Jesus is saying, guys, you don't have a clue who I am. You just don't know where I fit in. You don't have a category for me. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a religious leader. I'm something or someone else. And he leaves it to them to figure it out. But he gives them some strong clues, some, uh, some unequivocal clues, to be honest. Why? Because he says, as long as the bride, my disciples don't fast, as little as the wedding guests will fast when the bridegroom is with them. So what's the comparison Jesus is making? He's saying his disciples are like the wedding guests. And he, therefore, is the bridegroom. Now, who's the bridegroom? Now, these guys knew their scriptures. They knew Isaiah and they knew Jeremiah. So they knew the words of Isaiah 54, where it says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. They knew the words of Isaiah 62, where it says, for as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. They knew the scriptures. They knew God is the bridegroom. So why did you just take that into your heart for a minute whilst I take a, tip of my, a sip of my tea? Jesus is saying that he is God. And, and I think they're just, they are just slowly, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're just slowly taking this truth in as Jesus is saying this. He is very clearly saying that, that he is God in the flesh. Now, this might help to explain why Jesus has to use a further two illustrations to drive the point home. He's just talked about the bridegroom and that he is the bridegroom and that his disciples can't fast because the bridegroom is with them and and then he goes on to take to make two further illustrations that fits with the wedding theme the the next place he takes us to is to a tailor shop typically the place i guess where a bridegroom would go or where a bride would go or where the wedding party would go before uh, before a wedding they would go and tailor their clothes and patch up all the holes and um can't say this is something I have done, but I've certainly seen it done in my own house where clothes that have been worn through would be patched and would be patched by other bits of clothing that's been used as well. And so we'd cut up old pajamas to fix newer pajamas so that the pajamas could sort of constitute a, a less holy set of pajamas. Um, but I'm pretty sure that if these stretchy pajamas uh, were to be stitched together with really taut linen cloth, it would cause havoc when the pajamas would go into the wash. It would just tear apart. It would. I see all the fabric experts in my house nodding and agreeing with that. Uh, and so that's what Jesus is saying. He's just saying, so you don't get, you don't get this. You want to, you, you look at me, Jesus, and you think, oh, he's a teacher of the law, he's a rabbi, he's some kind of prophet, some kind of messenger. And you're trying to 
to understand me like that. But if you try and understand me like that, I will tear your life apart because I won't fit in the place you want to put me. Uh, it will just cause havoc with your life. If you want to treat me as a teacher or as a guru or as a comforter or as a counselor, you will soon find out that I just don't fit in that category because I'll come out with things like, I am your maker and I can tell you what you are to do. Uh, and, and he's the one that will say things like, uh, I am the Lord of your life and you are my bond servant, you are my slave. And you think, but that doesn't fit with the, the view that I thought you are my butler, you're there to serve my needs and meet my needs. Uh, you, you'll struggle when Jesus has hard words for you, when you feel particularly in need of comfort and, and he rebukes you because you perhaps need not comfort, but correction. And you won't have a category for Jesus to fit in if you treat him like that. He would tear the old clothes apart as you're trying to fit the new person of Jesus into your old life. He will not be a patch on your old set of clothes. You have to have the whole thing new. That's what Jesus is saying. So that's he's speaking to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law as he's saying this, but he's also teaching us, isn't he? And then he uses the third illustration. First, it was the wedding feast. He is the, he is the bridegroom. Second, it was the suit of clothes and the patching of it. And now he takes us from the tailor's shop to the winemaker's cellar. And um, it's, again, not an illustration we're familiar with. I can't remember the last time I had to fill a wine skin in my house. <laughs> Never had to do it. In fact, I can vaguely remember my... Yeah, this is I'm kind of a... Cool story, actually. Um, but as a as a youngster, my, um, my my older brother and I, together with my dad and his father, my grandfather, went on a on a on a, a, a safari, a, a trip through the Botswana Okavango Delta, and we uh, travelled in an old banged up Range Rover that uh, I can just remember was um, was which is very comfortable and very thirsty, a V8 engine. And we went through the Okavangu. I remember sitting on the roof of this, uh, of this car as we would go through, as we wade, wade through water to look for, for not so much crocodiles, they can't damage the car, but, but hippos, that'll be under the water. And so I have to steer my dad through as he's making his way through the water. Why am I telling you this? Oh, because in the front, on, on, the, on the radiator of this car, I don't know where we bought this, we, we hung um, a, leather, a leather bag that was filled with water and as the car would drive, the air that would come from the front of the car would always keep this, this skin of water cold because water would slowly seep out on the sides but because the wind is going, blowing past it all the time, it just cools the, the water down on the inside. And so whenever we stopped the car, you know, they, we didn't have fridges and things. Um, you would take some of this water and you would drink it. But I remember seeing this, this uh, water container made out of leather in the garage years later and it was all crusty and, and you, couldn't, you couldn't even bend it anymore because it's not had moisture in it. The principle of these wine skins worked a bit like this, that when you fill unfermented wine into a new wine skin, the moisture of the new wine would, would soften the leather and then as the wine fermented, it would expand, as those that are brewing beer in our church would know, it will expand, but the bag itself will expand with it. So if at the end of that season, you then pour the wine out of that skin, and next 
season, you think, oh, well, I can just use that skin again. Remember, it's already stretched. And so if you put unfermented wine in it and the wine begins to ferment, I'm sure, Jonah, if you're listening to this, you can tell me what will happen. It'll explode. The whole thing has become so hard, it'll just crack and break. And so again, the same illustration is you try and patch Jesus onto your life, he will break your life apart. You try and pour Jesus into an old way of thinking, an old way of doing, it will just, it will essentially explode your life. There's, it just won't fit. And so there's an important message for us uh, as both believers and non-believers. I think uh, for non-believers, you've, you've got to be careful trying to just fit Jesus into your life because it, he won't fit. And he just won't make sense. And I know this puts you in a bit of a difficult position because you really can't consider the claims of Christ clearly and well if you don't put him into the category that he wants to be in and that he needs to be in. But in order to put him into that category, you would say, but that requires a massive leap of faith. And, and you just don't have enough faith to put him into that category. I, I will just say to you, why did you try it? Why did you just try it on? And you take Jesus on face value, on the claim that he is making, where he is saying that I've not come to be a butler or a comforter or merely a counselor uh, or just a helper. I've come to be Lord of your life. And then instead of just looking at the things that will have to change, remember, it's not just the things that you think that will have to change, you know, how it would affect your habits, perhaps your, uh, your, your sexual life, perhaps your financial life, your work life, your professional life. How, how Jesus will come to change those things. Don't just focus on the negative things that, in your view, will have to happen. Consider also the positive things that will change. Because Jesus will come into your life and he will, take, he will take responsibility for your life. Not just the beginning of your life, but the end of your life. He promises to take responsibility for all of it. And, and where he's steering the end of it is to a feast. A feast that he is unapologetic about. A feast that... He's fully committed to. So, so you've got to ask yourself, it's not just the things that will change, the habits that you hold dear, that you know that will be against your newfound Christian faith. But remember, it's also against your fears, those things that you dread. Those things will be washed out and will be replaced with a new truth, the truth of Christ's uh, feasting. So, Christians, what do you need to do as you consider Christ in this way? Um, I think you've got to acknowledge that you are prone to treat Jesus as, just do this quickly. Um, you are prone to, um, to go back on what you believe about Jesus. You treat him as, as Lord. You treat him as, as king. You confess to as much on a Sunday service. And, and moments later, you go back to treating him as a preference, as, uh, as an appendix, as something that you had just attached to your life. Um, and we've got to confess that. We've got to confess that to him, that we have been treating him and mistreating him as we did that. 
And we've got to confess that to our non-Christian friends who's looking at our lives and saying, look, you're calling me to submit to the Lordship of Christ in all things, but you don't submit to his Lordship, not in your fears and, and not in your pleasures. And so there needs to be change. There needs to be change. And what the Bible is proposing, it is change for the better. It is change, the change of feasting. And the key change that I would love for you to consider, not just this morning, but for the rest of your life, is the one that we'll be driving home as a church over the next coming months, is Christ is risen. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is alive, a bodily Jesus Christ, one of our, one of our ilk, a human being. The head, Jesus calls himself, has risen and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he says, where I am, you too will be. You are no longer dead. If you're a Christian, you're, you are no longer dead. You are no longer subject to the same fears that you are or were when you were merely alive biologically. You have been resurrected to new life and you have this sure promise from Christ, your head, that where he is, you too will be. This Thursday is Ascension Day. Uh, we'll celebrate the day that Christ uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Uh, and what you need to know about this Ascension of Jesus is He ascended in bodily form. It's not a wispy spirit that went up to heaven. It is the real, living, breathing, touchable, tangible Jesus Christ that ascended into the heavens. That is now gone through that which divides this earth from heaven, the presence of God, Jesus has bodily ascended to sit at the right hand of God. So the category-busting nature of Jesus is not just category-busting to non-Christians, but to Christians as well. And this is the key change. change. You are no longer dead, you're alive, you're alive like your head, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Where he is, you too will be. And that was my second point. <laughs> the change that has to happen is the change from death to life. Therefore, no longer count yourselves as dead, but alive. Now, third point, and it's an ominous point. It's easily missed. Okay, that is our standard little dip during every service. There's a moment where Stefani says, you're gone, you're gone, that just happened, we're back. So go back to the passage and see, see verse 20. Go back to the wedding feast, 19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. He's essentially saying they are unable to fast. It's... The Greek verb of that word is dynamis, dynamic, ability. They are unable to fast. It's impossible for them to, they don't have the ability to fast whilst they're guests at a wedding. But there will come a day, Jesus says, in ominous language. It's language that is taken from the prophets. You know, when the prophet Jeremiah, and I think I found that in Jeremiah 31, when, when, when he introduces an ominous judgment, he talks about days are coming. And Jesus adopts and, and uses the same language when he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. 
So I wanted to say at the beginning, if you read this passage and you only use the headings that the Bible publishers give us, you would think this passage is all about fasting. And then when you do the research, you discover it's not all about fasting. It's all about Jesus and about the fact that Jesus is God. But, but now it turns to the fact that it is about fasting and there will come a time that it will be, that it will be suitable for us to fast. In fact, the, we will be not just able to fast, we'll be driven to fast. And, and what he's saying, it will be the same as it is that when you have the bridegroom with you and imagine you're at a, a, a wedding feast that lasts for seven days. Uh, and halfway through the, the festival, the feast, the bridegroom and bride is, is abruptly taken away. Sadness will overcome the whole party. I, I remember seeing pictures of this during this quarantine lockdown period where a, a couple thought they can get away with, uh, with ha having a, a wedding whilst in lockdown. And... Um, and the party obviously got going and people at first were probably very careful to keep it all quiet. But then eventually the party got going and, and the police arrived. And there's pictures that you can find of a bride in her white dress being put into a police car and driven away. And a bridegroom in his suit being put in a police car and driven away. Sad, you know. It wasn't a sensible thing that they did. So, you know, that's their example. But in this example, what Jesus is saying, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, is taken away from them. The Greek word there is in the passive voice. It means it is something that is happening to him. It's not something he's doing. It's something that's happening to him. He is taken away. It's also in the subjunctive mood, which I don't know what that means. But if that means anything to those of you that are grammar and morphological fundies. You go figure out what that means. Hmm? Okay, I can't, I can't hear what you're saying, but it's, it's an important thing. But taken away. Now, we know this, so keep this, and you've got to balance this out. Christ's life wasn't robbed from him. Um, he says in another place that he lays down his life, and he does that willingly. He lays it down to take it up again. So, so all of what happens with Jesus at his crucifixion is the bridegroom being taken away, but it's not taken from him. He gives himself. So that's an important difference between what actually happens to Jesus and the, 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 the parable that Jesus is telling here. But the point still stands. When that happens, it is deeply unpleasant. And it is as if Jesus' life is taken away from him. It is as if the bridegroom is abruptly taken away from not just wedding guests, and this is the other big difference, but from his bride. And what a thing. This is why it is suitable for Christians to have times of lament. This is why it is commendable when Christians do fast, not pulling their faces in a knot and not messing up their hair and telling everyone that they're doing it. But, but when they consider the, the suffering that Christ had to endure in order to bring us to himself, it is suitable that we do it. In fact, it's healthy spiritually and physically when we do it. So 
when we consider this, we've got to consider that Christ, whilst he was speaking to his disciples, whilst he was speaking to the Pharisees at this point, he was reminding them that there will be a day that will come when the bridegroom will be taken away and then they will be sad. And then it will be fitting for them to fast. And here's the point. The point is you've got to have a sense of perspective. You've got to have a sense of history, not just in your life, but in your spirituality. Uh, it's, it's no point to live life without any idea of the bigger story uh, that you fit into. Uh, we cannot act as if, uh, as if it's a pre-coronavirus time in, in London. It's just we can't meet as a church. We can't pretend that, that none of what's happened in the last two months hasn't happened. It's, 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 being, it's, it's being irrational and, 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 and losing track with reality. In the same way, it would have been irrational from the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at the time to, to, to act when Jesus was amongst them as if Jesus wasn't amongst them, as if it was a time pre-Jesus. Uh, and, and this time when they thought fasting and walking around with a glum face was suitable and, and commendable, it's no longer commendable because here is Jesus. He is right there in their midst. It's a new time. It's a new period in history. And there's a sidebar for you. Please come to our English Reformers talk next Saturday morning at 10 a.m. on Zoom. Please come to that because it will give you a sense of perspective. It tells you the story where you fit in so that you know what is the appropriate way to behave in this new time frame that you're in? So when Jesus was amongst these people, there was no time to fast. And can you imagine being around Jesus at the time? Can you imagine being part of that party where he's reaching out across the bread and the wine and he's looking at you uh, with, with love and with compassion and with laughter and with joy and you're constantly looking at the other disciples around you think, can you believe this? Can you believe this is happening? In fact, when the wine runs out, he makes more wine. That's at the wedding feast in Cana. When the people are hungry on the mountainside, Jesus just produces more food. It's a completely different kind of feast when Jesus is around. When people come in who are ill or demon-possessed, he heals them or he drives out the demon. Can you imagine being at a, a party like that? Can you imagine the, the dissonance you would feel, the... the the discord you would feel in your heart when, when someone sits there in a corner with a glum face with ash on his head and he's not eating, he's not partaking, he just looks at everything very, very skeptically and, and disapprovingly. That's, that's what they did in Jesus' time and I'm sure, I'm hopeful that we would have acted as people that follow Jesus. But now the bridegroom has been taken away from us. He has been taken away from us. And, and so how do we behave in this period where the bridegroom has been taken away from us? And this is where it requires wisdom. And this is where our website fits in. It requires wisdom because we simply cannot now go on moping and moaning and whining and, and, and being dull and dispirited and despairing and depressed because the bridegroom has been taken away. That is true, but it's not all that is true of the Christian life. It is true. Christ has been horribly crucified and has been, uh, has been defaced and has, uh, has, been, has been demeaned and has died on that cross. That is true. Hold on to that one truth. He did this. The Passover lamb was sacrificed. That is true. But the other truth is that he was the final sacrifice. 
He, he paid fully and completely for all our sins. His death was our death. That was the last sacrifice. Yes, He died. But Resurrection Sunday, He is alive again. He is alive again. He, he, he was alive. He appeared to his disciples. And, and on Thursday, we'll remember that he's ascended and he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He is alive. That's what allows the Christian church today to feast in the presence of sadness all around us. I know it feels calloused and hard-hearted to put up bunting and, and, and to celebrate and to feast whilst... I'm pretty sure we are all looking at long-term economic uh, uh, downturn globally. I'm I, it's difficult to feast and to eat and to drink when, when, when we know there are loved ones uh, that are in hospital or who are recovering from, from COVID-19. It's hard to feast. It requires faith to feast in the midst of this. But, but remember this, that ever since Christ died and rose again his church has faced all kinds of sufferings and christians have feasted even whilst being persecuted because their feasting is not a mouth feast or a hand feast it's a heart feast it is through faith seeing the risen christ on the other side uh, of the table feeding us binding us together looking after us and promising that where he is we too will be it is a feast of faith. So see this as you uh, begin to think how you can celebrate and spend Sundays differently. Start to think how you can feast as a family. I'll tell you a little change that we've made, and this morning was one of the first ones. I'm sure my wife will not appreciate me saying this, but I will say it nonetheless. We tend to drink a black coffee in the mornings. We wake up and I make a strong double espresso for both of us. And it's a bit like a jolt, you know, it's, it's not very comforting. It's like someone just punches you in the face and says, get up, get going. It's a bit like medicine. Yeah, I'll be honest. And we do this um, six days a week. But on a Sunday morning, oh, on a Sunday morning, then we make flat whites. Then we take the full cream milk, throw it up to a perfect consistency. This morning I was a little bit naughty. I put some... Some coconut in there. Coconut. What is it that I put in there? Coconut milk or butter. I don't know, but it's delicious. I just try to spruce it up a bit. A decadent, luxurious, creamy drink as we woke up this morning. Why? Because let's keep the feast. It's a time to feast. It is a time that we remember that Christ has risen. Yes, all that is sad is true, but he is making everything new. And soon all that is sad will become untrue. So I pray that you will find new ways to feast on a Sunday. And if you're a non-Christian, I pray that you'll be invited to these feasts soon. And that you will see that there is a feast going on in houses, Christian houses, both for those in poverty and in wealth, those in sickness and in health, where they feast through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with a C.S. Lewis quote because that's always the best way to close, I think. Um, it's, it's great. I don't know where to use this, but I thought this will be the place. It's Lewis. I should have put it on there. Oh, this computer has now died and we won't be able to sing if this has died. So put some power into that, please. I'll read the quote. Oh. 
Now this one has died as well. It seems to have happened all at the same time. Perhaps I shouldn't read the quote then. Um, let me see. I sent it to someone on WhatsApp recently, so I could possibly easily find it there. Let me just quickly go back to it. It's a longish quote, but I, I, think, I think it's good. Here we go. C.S. Lewis from Four Loves. He writes this. For a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. And that's part of the previous context. We don't know what that's about. But then he says, a secret master of the ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, "Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. No, no. Our friendship is the instrument by which God reveals to each the beauties of all the others. They are no greater, uh, they are no greater than the beauties of a thousand other men. By friendship, God opens our eyes to them. They are, are like all beauties, derived from Him through the friendship itself, so that it is his instrument for creating as well as for revealing. So that's all about friendship, and I'll, we can talk about that at another time. But it essentially just says, you've not chosen your friends, especially your Christian friends. They've been given to you by the one who chose them for you as friends. But now he talks about the feast. He says, at this feast, this feast of friendship, it is he who has spread the board, and it is he who has chosen the guests. It is he, we may dare to hope, uh, who sometimes does and always should preside at this feast. So let us not reckon without our host. This feast is a feast of faith. And this is a very strong apologetic in our world that Christ is among us. He's the head of these tables where we're feasting. So feast in the gospel today. Feast in the friendships that is given to all of us and glorify Jesus through it. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you have given to us. Um, we ask now that you'll fill our hearts with joy. Uh, Father, we've listened to a long, long sermon now. We have been sitting for a long time. We're about to sing your praises, and we ask that we'll sing it with hearts that have been transformed by this truth, that we have so much to be thankful for. We pray that you'll fill these houses not with uh, dispirited, despairing gloom, but that you'll fill these houses with joyful, raunches, laughter and celebration. That we will all work at our joy as we celebrate and keep the feast this Lord's Day. We pray as we come to this next part of our service where we normally celebrate the feast, having the Lord's Supper together, we will not be downcast knowing your promise that we will one day be back together again. Uh, if not in this world, definitely in the world to come, in the new heavens and new earth, we will see you face to face. And there we will worship and rejoice together. So let us, uh, enable, let us be enabled now through your spirit to keep the feast because Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Amen.